Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming up. On ABC Radio. Let's pull up the racism. Let's have that voice. Let's not be afraid to say, hey, don't speak to somebody like that. Let's pull up the homophobia. Let's be leaders all in the space and collectively and support each other and pull each other up together. That's what I see as inclusion. Queer Aboriginal voices matter. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Whether it be on our television screens or a sporting field, over the past two decades, there's been a growing acceptance and inclusion offered towards members of the LGBTIQ plus community by the broader Australian public. And while we can all acknowledge there is plenty of work left to be done, what thought has our society given to the challenges faced by those who identify as both queer and a person of colour? For First Nations members of the Rainbow community, visibility and inclusion remain two of the most important issues which need to be addressed. This is something that was explored in greater detail during the recent panel discussion, Queer Aboriginal Voices Matter. Held online and facilitated by Dr Michelle Dixon, the conversation was hosted by the University of Sydney Pride Network and Pride at AGSM as part of their Future Business Leaders for Equality series. The event provided an opportunity to think about how we can move beyond acceptance into a space of belonging for our queer Aboriginal brothers and sisters. Joining the conversation were social epidemiologist and co-convener to the oldest continuing LGBTQI plus rights organisations, ILGA World, Dr Vanessa Lee. Consultant and inaugural CEO for the National Centre for Indigenous Excellence in Redfern, Jason Glanville, and Pro Vice-Chancellor Equity and Indigenous at Edith Cowan University's Centre for Indigenous Australian Education and Research, Professor Braden Hill. All three have been staunch advocates of the need to break down stigmas which exist for the queer community and possess decades of experience in both the academic and corporate sectors. We'll pick up the conversation with some opening comments from facilitator Dr Michelle Dixon. I'm an Australian Aboriginal woman. I'm darkened in Narago families. I'm an academic in the Sydney School of Public Health, part of the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney. I'm, I live with my wife on Gadigal land and I'm a proud lesbian woman. I have four grown-up children that still keep me really busy. I love them all. And um, I've worked at UCID for 10 years. And I'll show a little bit of my vintage by saying that I've been working in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, well-being and education for over 25 years. So that's ageing me instantly. I'd like to put a special thanks out to the University of Sydney Pride Network and Pride at AGSM for creating this fourth event in the Future Business Leaders for Equality series, Queer Aboriginal Voices Matter. Thank you to Jack and Innes and all of the supportive other colleagues who have brought us all together. I think we all have hopes for today and I thought I'd just name a couple of mine. I hope that you all get to know a little bit more about our panel members. There's some awesome colleagues online waiting to talk with you. I hope we share ideas and lived experiences about what some people call intersectionality of 
what it is to be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and queer. We're going to explore a little bit of that together, asking some questions of the panel, and then we're going to open up to Jan with all of you using questions that you do post on Slido. So please do post questions throughout the time we have together and, and we'll be watching that and addressing as many of those questions as we possibly can. We have a huge audience, so I'm sure we won't get to everybody's question, but please know we will do our best. So I would love to introduce the wonderful panellists that we have here, three great colleagues, and I am fascinated by how we all introduce ourselves. And what I'd love to do is ask my colleagues to do their own introduction, who you are, where you're from, a little bit about what you do, and then we'll move into some more questions. So could we start with Jason? Sure. Thanks, Michelle, and good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thanks again to everyone that you've thanked, Michelle. This is a welcome conversation. I'm thrilled to be a part of it, particularly with Michelle, Vanessa and Braden, whose work I'm a big fan of. As the, the token non-academic on the panel, I want to acknowledge how important your work is and continues to be, particularly in conversations like this one that I don't think happen nearly often enough. And I think the size of the audience today talks to the need for more of these conversations. So my name's Jason Glanville. I'm Wiradjuri. I was born on Wiradjuri country and grew up on Wiradjuri country in a little place called Kudamundra. Spent a fairly blissful childhood there with a big family. Been very lucky to have lived and worked on the land of lands of many nations around Australia, uh, particularly in regional and remote Australia. And my home for the last 11 years has been predominantly here on Gadigal land in Redfern with my husband and a very special queer urban family that we're very lucky to be a part of. As I said, I'm the, non, I'm the token non-academic on the panel and it's important to position myself as the person who brings anecdotes rather than evidence to a conversation like this. But um, my background is in community startups, tripping and falling from extraordinary opportunity to extraordinary opportunity and trying increasingly to build platforms that create safety for particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices, but also places that amplify Indigenous excellence and provide opportunities to turn the usual deficit narratives on their head and to celebrate the extraordinary accomplishments of our community in all of its forms. And that's taken the shape of organisations like the National Centre of Indigenous Excellence in Redfern, the Atlantic Fellows for Social Equity, the Australian Indigenous Governance Institute. I won't give you the full CV, but I um, have spent the last six months here on Gadigal land on what I've been politely calling a sabbatical, having not taken much of a break in the last 25 years, reconnecting with family and friends and trying to reconnect with all of the life experiences that inform who I am and how I fit in my skin uh, and thinking about what the next 20 years of contribution might look like. So again, thanks. It's a real thrill to be here. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you so much. And I love, I get very excited hearing that people are turning deficit narratives on their heads. So Hats off, let's keep doing more of that. Could I ask Vanessa to, can you introduce yourself, Vanessa? Sure, thank you, Michelle. Hi, everybody. My name is Vanessa Liamat. I am a Yupungati and Miriam woman. I grew up on my, and I was born on my own people's land, I'm happy to say. And I'm a social epidemiologist at University of Sydney in the Faculty of Medicine and Health. 
I too have over 25 years experience. Doesn't that tell our ages? I don't see myself as um, just an academic. I also see myself as an advocate for um, LGBTIQ, sister girls, brother boys issues in Australia. I've been doing that for many, many years in women's issues, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women's issues. And now as I step into the role as the co-convener for the International Lesbian and Gay Association Oceana region, I now extend my advocacy to the whole of the LGBT. QI, Sister Girls and Brother Boys, for the region, for the Pacific region, which I'm really enjoying and learning a lot from my colleagues in that space and bringing that in, you know, connecting that all together with what I do in academia. So thank you. Awaswa. Thank you, Vanessa. Some awesome work there. It's exciting, exciting works. Now, Braden, could I ask you to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. Thanks, Michelle. My name's Braden. I'm the, as my fancy title there tells you, I'm the Pro-Vice-Chancellor Equity and Indigenous at Edith Cowan University in Perth, Western Australia. I'm a Noongar Wadandi man from the southwest, so I'm living and working on Wadjuk country with my very handsome French husband that I had to import in. But part of my job here at the university is I look after our enabling programs. I'm the head of Coronacle Cutagen, which is our Indigenous centre here. And I also look after the equity team within our university, so I have quite a broad remit. In this space, whilst being an executive of the university, I'm also a researcher, and some of the work that I've been doing is around the intersection between uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, particularly in WA, and the intersection with queerness, and what that means for the ways in which people can access health services and what looks like quality care to our queer Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. So, yep, that's who I am. Thank you so much, Brayden. We have a fantastic panel and I can see that we have 350 participants. So I think it would be fabulous for the panel to get a little bit more of a sense of who else is in this Zoom room with us. Um, so could I please ask Jack to run our first poll? We're going to really try and build a sense of community online by using Slido and polling. So Jack, could we, oh, thank you, there it is. Could people please opt in if you will? to help us get a, a sense of uh, who else is in the room. We've got three questions. We're asking about age first. We're asking whether you identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, if you identify as LGBTIQ, sister, girl, brother, boy. So Jack is steering that, I believe. This is where the host and panellists get to to watch. We can't participate in this bit. <laughs> Fantastic. And I think that our last question now, I have to say it's awesome to have you helping behind the scenes, Jack. Thank you very much. Okay. We're going to show that now. So let's have a look here. Um, here, here we are. So people in the room, we have uh, nobody under the age of 18. Um, have a couple of people 65 or above. Um, so it's a nice impression of, of uh, where we all sit. Let's have a look at our next question. So 75% of, of people joining today are part of the LGBTIQ sister, girl, brother, boy community. Fantastic. And the third one, we have 11%. Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. 
in our audience. So acknowledge all mob out there and, and hello to our non-Indigenous colleagues and allies. So what we are going to do is ask the panel a couple of questions and we all come from different workplaces and have experienced a whole range of different places, not only work-related but communities as well. And I think I'd like to kick off by asking the panellists, you know, what does an inclusive and supportive workplace look like for you? I know, Jason, you've done a lot of work in this space. You know, how do we create those inclusive and supportive spaces? Can we start with you, Jason? I think for me, as you say, I've been lucky to work in all sorts of organisations. I've also been particularly privileged with the community here in Redfern and elsewhere to build organisations from scratch informed very much from uh, the ambition of the community and the particular needs that the community wants served. And so I think what I've learnt through those experiences really is to make sure that the idea of inclusion is part of the daily lived experience of the organisation, any organisation inclusion can't be an add-on, it can't be an event. Really for me, it isn't particularly complex and people often treat it as too complex, I think. The challenges that face particular parts of our community are complex, but workplaces can respond to that by just fundamental good sense around what respect looks like and what fairness and equity look like. And that's both in the creation of physical spaces within the workplace and it starts absolutely at the top of the organisation. This is not an HR function in an institution. If the organisation has a board, it starts with the board. This kind of culture belongs with the board down through the leaders of the organisation to all staff. You know, if you've got a board full of racist homophobes, the organisation's got no chance. And those boards still exist. I've experienced them time and time again. I know others have too. So it takes work and it takes, I guess, the development of some healthy habits around respect and culture of recognising how diversity of experiences inform what safety looks like. Uh, And, of course, the best inclusion policies come in those places where the approach to inclusion is informed by those people who are most likely to be isolated in an organisation that isn't genuinely inclusive. And the best inclusion comes when it matches the culture of the organisation. So I would imagine a preschool might have a different set of practices around as opposed to what a football club might have, for example. So there is no one-size-fits-all approach to inclusion. It's very much around leadership, constant dedication to the habits of inclusion to the point where they stop being practised and are just part of the business as usual. And a a clear understanding of the organisation's approach to when inclusion is not working and how particular measures of safety can be built around those who need it most in the moments when inclusion fails. I think that'd be my observations. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jason. And I, I particularly love your comment about, you know, healthy habits around respect. That's a really telling suggestion. And as you say, not complex. It's quite fundamental, isn't it? Braden, have you got your response to add? Yeah, sure. Similar to Jason, look, I think for me, the observations that I've made is that 
leadership is really critical at all levels. And I think as leaders, wherever we sit within an organisation, as big or small as it may be, I think we have to model that within our own professional context. And I think to be able to do that with the team that I work with is is vitally important because if we're asking the rest of our organisation to behave in, as Jason points out, in a respectful way, we need to be able to show how that is done. And I, as a leader, need to be able to do that effectively and be visible in how we do that. I think it's also important you have a strategy around this. It can't just be a bolt onto something. There has to be something explicit about how you are going to be an inclusive organisation. It's not it's something that has to be well understood across the board and, and having a clear commitment is really important as part of the strategic landscape of an organisation, I think. I think in terms of what an inclusive organisation or an inclusive workplace then looks like is it it means that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people or LGBTIQ members of the workplace aren't having to do the work all the time. They're not always having to do the heavy lifting. So it's nice to be surprised by some of my uh, senior colleagues, not surprised, but when I'm not the one having to raise the issues, when I'm not having to be critical to those challenging conversations, I think they're the moments when I think, yes, okay, we're getting towards a more inclusive organisation. So I think they're the kind of behaviours that will lead us to get to a point where we can all be completely ourselves within the professional context. And I think that has to be the goal. And how we get it really is context specific. But for me, that's the goal. How can we all be our complete selves at work? And it's something that we're all very familiar talking about, but how we get there is a different story, I think. So that's to me what needs to be done and what it looks like when we get it right. Thank you, Braden. And I think, you know, that that concept of not bolting it on is really important. It needs to be so core and central to all the work. And I think particularly really important is that when you see other people stepping up and sometimes it, it is a lovely surprise to see, but it'll be fantastic when it's just business as usual, isn't it? Yeah. Vanessa. Yeah, sure. Just to add to what um, Jason and Brayden have already said, LGBT people and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander LGBT people, sister, girl, brother, boy, queer and intersex. Also, everyone needs to be included in the conversation. Leadership isn't about an individual approach. Leadership is actually about a collective approach. And as for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, that's how we live our lives, collectively. For LGBTQI, sister, girl, brother, boy, and all the other acronyms, we actually all come together collectively. Society forces us to be collective. So that inclusion needs for us all to reflect on that respect on what it means to us together. And in that leadership position, we ask our leaders to actually you know what, guide the behaviour, stop dictating to us, stop trying to tell us, and then we see that you go out and and your actions do not support your words or your beliefs or the values of the university, of the organisation. Bring it together and include us. Be inclusive. Be that inclusive action. And let's also be better at respecting each other and be culturally better as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but also as the broader LGBTQI, sister, girl, brother, boy community as well. Let's bring that together. And and that's what the leadership is about for me. And that's what inclusion is about for me. And, you know, like, let's pull up the racism. Let's have that voice. Let's not be afraid to say, hey, don't speak to somebody like that. Let's pull up the homophobia. Let's be leaders all in the space and collectively and support each other and pull each other up together. That's what I see as inclusion. That's Dr. Vanessa Lee, social epidemiologist and co-convener of ILGA World. You've also heard from consultant Jason Glanville and Professor Braden Hill.
The conversation was facilitated by Dr Michelle Dixon from the University of Sydney as part of the series Future Leadership for Equality. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt. And if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app? And that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Tonight, we're taking a look at the impact of discrimination on the queer First Nations community by featuring highlights from the recent online event, Queer Aboriginal Voices Matter. We'll bring you more from the conversation shortly, but right now, some music from Emily Waramurra. Here she is with Stomping Ground, one of the standouts from her album, Black Smoke. Home, chuck it on and lace to that particular track. And as a matter of fact, what's the essence of culture? If you could just tell me that. As I ran an indigenous story, shed blood, sweat, and tears through my peers for many years, trying to bring much glory to warriors and ancestors. Less spiritual footprints for me, I follow before me, and other systems trying to ignore the colored MC. Same time, bullet man sitting up top upon the sideline, trying to adore and suppress the murder in me. So, was it respect and courtesy? Indebted to the beat, forget it, don't worry about it, it's not accepted. Never was an option for thee. Same, struggle and pain, the black brothers gotta get through one a regular day to day basis, man. It's just the same old, same old. Foot stomping, legs shaking, cries all around. The earth is quaking from stories passed down. Black, yellow, red are the colors I see. Defining the culture that's inside of me. In the water, father once said to his daughter, True story beginning with slaughter. So, without the order of water in this day and age, nowadays I think we will remain in a never ending mind frame of pain. Sometimes going insane, but yet still trying to make a generous change for the next generation, eh? Making those seem more reachable and pain or remain. It's a beginning of a new world order to work when they're forced to grow up in a world filled with dishonor, two dishonor, a kind of another, two kind of another, finding one another. So, which is what you're running to, one of forever runner is what I'm eventually gonna discover. You're running, there's plenty to see. If you're Looking for thick, say. Stolen generation was a crazy situation. Now we're back up on the scene, rising to the top, positively elevating through the black smoke with its instruments and music. Stomping, legs shaking, cries all around. The earth is quaking from stories passed down. Black, yellow, red are the colors I see, defining the culture that's inside of me. 
stories passed down Black, yellow, red are the colors I see The fun in the culture that's inside of me Good stomping legs, shaking cries all around The earth is quaking from stories passed down Black, yellow, red are the colors I see The fun in the culture that's inside of me that was Emily Waramara with Stomping Ground. Let's return now to our panel discussion and we pick up the conversation with facilitator Dr Michelle Dixon. Let's find out what some of our workplaces or what our audience think about their own workplaces or educational institutions or wherever you're zooming in from. Could we go to poll question number eight? And I'll just ask for audience to engage in that poll So we're asking, you know, my workplace, educational institution or wherever you're sitting right now, is inclusive or safe for LGBQI, SGBB, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? So we've got um, some interesting results there. So we've got, you know, 57% of people agreeing or totally agreeing that their place of work or their place of study is safe and inclusive. I think that's reassuring to have that with us in the audience. There's still significant uh, numbers there around in the neutral or disagree. And, And I guess those figures are the figures that we hope conversations like this start to shift. I'm wondering whether we could share some of the joys of what it is to identify as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and queer. Vanessa? Sure. (laughs) I I love my culture and I love who I am and where I come from. And embedded in that is my queerness. And I wouldn't walk away from it. But quids, you know, I love who I am. And not all my family support me, but the ones that do are the most important ones. And that's what matters to me. And bringing that into the workplace and and bringing that into my own identity and accepting my identity, it took a long time and it was challenging. And now a lot of the work I do is about wellness and well-being and suicide prevention and trying to change that narrative to give a positive viewpoint and flip the switch so that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people no longer feel ashamed of who they are or their identity and letting young people know that it's okay, it's safe. You know, last week I was on a radio interview and we were talking about humour, black humour. And the interesting thing is when you talk about black humour, you know, we all laugh all the time, but sometimes that humour can turn nasty. And that humour, you see it in both Western and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, and that humour can turn quite nasty and, and really ridicule a LGBTQI, sexuality, diverse, gender diverse person, a sister, girl, brother, boy. And people don't realise that can actually contribute to a suicide or a breakdown. That could be the final straw. And it's about pulling each other up, like I said earlier. A good example, I'll give you someone I really enjoy watching him as I've come in my identity and and really learned to love myself, Um, Stephen Oliver, Aboriginal gay man, incredibly funny. Like I've never walked away from his jokes feeling traumatised. His jokes are about himself being an Aboriginal out gay man. And I think what an amazing role model for our people, for our young people and who we are and identifying with who we are where we come from. It's such a powerful and positive notion to know who you are when you walk, what you do. You know, we all had this COVID-19 thing happening and, you know, everybody was going into self-isolation and all of a sudden I found myself coming out internationally as the co-convener of the International Lesbian Gay Association for the Oceania region. And, like, I remember just standing there going, whoa, this is huge. Okay, breathe it in, you got this. And um, a young man actually said to me, you know, like, you coming out like this is so powerful for so many youth and we thank you. And I thought, thank you, that is lovely. 
Vanessa, thank you. And you do have that. It's you, you make us all so proud in, in your work and on that committee, but also the work you're doing in suicide prevention is just so important and pivotal for the future, for our current generation, but for our future ones as well. Jason, would you like to share some stories of joy? Yeah, sure. Thanks. I have this extraordinary privilege of having a life full of joy, really. I gave myself way too hard a time in my coming out process. It took too long. I didn't have enough faith in the people who loved me. But I grew up clear about who I was as a Wiradjuri kid and then eventually man. And I think that moment where my skin fit properly for the first time was when I was finally out to everybody There was no fear or discomfort anymore around any of that for anyone. I have, and I I acknowledge that for some people in our community, this isn't the case, but I have the world's coolest parents, the best family, a couple of exceptions like Vanessa of people who can be a bit judgy, but almost universally loved and supported without question, which I know is a very lucky thing to have. I fell in love with my partner and our families fell in love with each other and that's another level of joy that comes from something I never thought I'd have in my life because of some of the challenges I had in coming out. And then we've grown into this, you know, there's the family you're born with and I'm, I'm lucky that mine is extraordinary. Then there's the family you make around you and John and I and our families are part of this extraordinary, diverse, queer, divine group of people, mostly based here in Sydney, And we get to celebrate loving each other all the time in different ways. We also protest together. We act together. We try and disrupt things where we can, where it's necessary, as Vanessa said. But I think one of the greatest joys is watching the kids in our family and the kids in our urban family growing up with a very different sense of what freedom looks like. I'm constantly being corrected by five and eight and nine-year-olds about the language I use in terms of, you know, uncle, you can't say that even as a queer man. So that, you know, these kids who genuinely less than any or more than any generation before them, you know, don't see colour, don't see gender, except as a point of pride and celebration and joy. They see that everyone has the right to be who they are, safe in their skin, safe in their community and to be, as Braden said earlier, in, in life as in the workplace, their most authentic self. And that is a daily source of joy, just watching these kids smash the world open, really, in, a, in an incredibly exciting way. And, of course... That comes from the privilege we all enjoy from the campaigners who have fought so hard and many who have died in the queer black space to get us to this point. Absolutely, absolutely. That's an imperative point for us to keep in mind. Thanks, Jason. You know, it's the young fellas that give me a lot of joy as well. And and I have very privileged to have loads of nieces and nephews. And I remember one little fella saying to me one day, Annie Shell, I'm going to play you a song. And, you know, played me a song and it was... Katy Perry fireworks and there was that scene and he suddenly said you know this is about you it's a really happy song you know gay as in happy and gay as in gay (laughs) so I just I just love I love the young fellas and how they're just so so there you know and and a lot of a lot of hard work generationally has gone into getting us to that point absolutely it's gorgeous Braden, some joy I think joy in just being who we are is fantastic. That's a freedom, I think, the freedom from fear that we all grow up with until a certain point where we take that that big step that we all remember and then the, the small micro steps that happen thereafter. I think for me, if I think about joyful moments in a professional context, knowing the forum that we're speaking to, I think 
the first time I ever felt personally and professionally won was a NADOC event with Stephen Oliver, where we had an almost fully black audience. And he was unashamedly black and queer and hilarious. And we had the aunties busting themselves in the front row. And hosting that event, I'd never felt more like I belonged in a professional context than at that moment. And when I think about those kinds of experiences, professionally, they're what bring joy. I think going on from what Jason and Vanessa have said as well, seeing young people in our regions just doing pride better than I could ever see at per CBD with a bunch of, they're all school-aged kids. I mean, that to me is extraordinary. So that brings me a lot of joy. Seeing our NADOC Perth event, have a bunch of drag queens perform as one of the main events. One of our old fellows, Richard Wally, said, well, I never thought I'd see that in my lifetime, but Jesus, beautiful. So it's those sorts of things that bring a lot of joy. And I mean, as a researcher, for me, it is really humbling when participants I don't even know, Black queer participants who, who will name me or colleagues who are doing some of this work and you go, okay, great, people are paying attention to this. That, that brings me a lot of joy. So as Vanessa said, wouldn't change a bloody thing. Absolutely. I think here, here, we're, we're all on that page. Fantastic. We're hearing our collective stories and the word together keeps coming up quite a bit and it, it is a beautiful word. And I might ask if Jack could give us a helping hand to run poll question four. This is for our participants to just think about and to identify, do you have any queer Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people as friends and colleagues? Let's think about this concept of togetherness and, and, and where it starts and how we can engage with that in workplaces and our places of study as we continue to move forward. Fantastic. 63%. Wonderful. Next time we meet, let's let's move that up a little higher. <laughs> and let's figure out how we how we achieve that. So there's still a little gap there. And I guess what I'm interested in asking, perhaps as the last question for the panel before we go to look at some of the great questions that are coming up on Slido, there is that little gap. So I'm thinking about how do you feel that queer Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are well represented in workplaces, in the media, in educational institutions? I know, Jason, this speaks quite a lot to some of the comments you've already made and Braden and, and Vanessa, but how does the representation we have now influence our next generation? Braden, I might start with you. Um, look, it, it's vitally important. I think some of the research that I've done has spoken to that. And I think it's interesting that representation and visibility beyond almost everything else that, that Black Queer Mob are saying is, is the first step. And it's vitally important, not only that sense of I'll be included when I do seek support around mental health or whether it be within the schooling context. When we ask people, what are the things that have made a difference to you? And it's for them having that person, having that visible person or that visible place that's obviously going to be receptive and welcoming of who they are. So representation is vitally important. And if it can't be done through an individual, then it has to be done through the culture and the identity of an organisation. But yeah, it's absolutely pivotal. Absolutely. Thank you. And and thank you for your research in that space. It's also incredibly important and helping inform some of the next steps we all take. Vanessa. Mm. Okay, so a lot of my work, as Braden has just said too, a lot of my work has been about exposing that visibility and making the invisible visible. And I guess, you know, like it's about that play on language. 
how often do we hear someone say, you know, I've got a token Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander position, and then they fill it with someone who's suddenly found their identity in, in the last five minutes, and the person they fill the position with has never never grew up in country, doesn't know cultural protocols, cultural respect, cultural safety ways of doing things, and you don't see that representation in the organisation. And so when we get to that point, I think it's about standing back and saying, okay, what is real here? What are we doing? How can we make sure that we we don't leave Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, LGBTQI, sister girl and brother boy over there? Because we need them to be part of the conversation. We need the whole LGBTQI community as part of the conversation. We can't make decisions. LGBTQI non-Indigenous people cannot make decisions for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, LGBTQ, sister girl and brother boy, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. They just can't do it because they don't have the lived experience. You know, we can't have that intersectionality of not just experiencing homophobia but also racism on top of that. And then on top of that we have policy. So that those social determinants not being met on all levels and that inequitable policies just gets feeding down and suppressing voices. And again, you know, it comes back to my point, like this play on language, like it's one thing to say, oh, we're doing this, we've got this Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person, you know, we've ticked the box. Actually, you haven't. You're not doing it. And you're not doing it properly. You're not having Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, LGBTQI, sister girl, brother boy people involved in the conversation at the table. You cannot make a policy about people if they're not there. It just doesn't work. You know, it goes back to that whole notion of nothing about us without us. Mm, absolutely. absolutely. And you just, you, you just can't do it. And so that, that visibility needs to be seen and heard, mm. not just seen. It has to be heard as well and, and, and people need to feel it. Mm. Like you can't just stand up there and say, you know, I'm doing this and, you know, it, it doesn't work. Anyway. No, that's not important. Language is often undersold for its impact and how we do it, how we choose it, how we feel it, but how we live it. And, and it's the lived experiences that are just so important. Thanks, Vanessa. Jason, what's your view on, on this one? Certainly my personal experience growing up was I didn't see, I saw myself culturally enough, but I didn't, I didn't see, there was no one in my community growing up that represented what I felt like I was on the inside and couldn't be on the outside. And so I really get how important representation is to something Braden said earlier about our own leadership. There's still more standing up to be done. To Vanessa's point, there's still more speaking out to be done. There are still places where, you know, I had CEO of a national organisation and I had a board member say to me once, play down the gay, about to launch a fundraising campaign and their advice was to be less gay to bring in more money. Of course, I amped up the game. We got a shitload more cash in response. But And then very recently I had someone say to me who sits on, you know, boards of very impressive organisations and it was a conversation about my interest in thinking about board work as a sort of retirement thing rather than the volunteer thing it has been, which lots of us do. And this bloke said to me, uh, well, I don't know why you identify as Aboriginal or gay because you can get away with not being either and it would serve you better to not be either in that ambition. That was in the last six months. I'm not surprised, I'm disappointed by that. It's not surprising. Lots of people hear much worse than that. People experience direct violence as opposed to that sort of lateral violence. But so I guess my point about representation is it's, it's as important now as it ever has been. These incredibly brave young people who are prepared to throw themselves repeatedly in dangerous situations to defend their identity and the identity of others, they deserve our support. We need to stand beside them, in front of them, behind them, wherever they need us to stand, 
to lend them our power and our voices, our privilege to ensure that the disruption that they're responsible for, which is increasingly, it still continues to be important. And the other thing about representation for me is as someone who doesn't have an artistic bone in my body but spends a lot of time in and around artists and the arts, and I got a text a little while ago from my dear brother Tony Albert who said he's, he's in the audience today. You know, organisations in the communities I'm a part of, there's so much cultural celebration in the form of performance and music and dance and comedy, as you guys have talked about. There needs to be more of that in the lived experience of the workplace. We need to bring the intersection of queer and Aboriginal together, which is a very specific but joyful to our earlier conversation, joyful way of connecting to who we are and how we live in the world and how we bring that into the workplace. So I think I don't see enough representation of queer Aboriginal people, much more than there was five years ago, but still not enough on boards, in CEO ships, in theatre, on stage, in in the movies. I think there's more work to be done. And again, I honour the trailblazers who have worked their guts out to create spaces for our mob to exist in those spaces in the way they do now. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I'm looking at some great questions coming in and one of the questions from our audience around how can our non-Indigenous friends and colleagues be great allies to us and to MOB and I think that you know we've heard some fantastic strategies and some reflections already from the panel but I'm wondering whether Braden and Vanessa your research also has some tips around this. I mean, Braden, your current research, please correct me if I, I don't have the title right, Breaking the Silence, Being Indigenous and Identifying as LGBTIQI. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Sure, happy to. There's a lot to talk about, so I'll just sort of cover off on some things. I think So the research is very much WA focused. So when we were talking about that with community and also our organisational partners, they weren't interested in UMOB on the East Coast. So sorry about that. But they were very much focused on, well, what's happening in WA? It's a very specific context within which we live and work. The research is funded by Healthway, so the West Australian Department of Health. And it was only, it was a small research project. So $75,000 over a two year, it ended up being a two and a half year period. So we worked with community and health organisations first, a bunch of focus groups with them around what they see as the barriers and enablers to being inclusive organisations for black queer mob in WA. And we ultimately ended up with just 63 participants in a community survey. So we did community org first with focus groups with about uh, six different organisations, including universities, actually. And then we also did a community survey out at which we had 63 relevant responses that we got back. Now, I just want to make the point around participants. It was a very low uptake from trans and intersex members of our community. And I think it speaks to the importance of research being done and led by those communities to make sure that we're capturing their lived experiences. Now, Just a few kind of headlines from that. A third of those people in that study were parents, and it speaks to the importance of more inclusive education and resources around that, particularly when working with with our communities here. In terms of things like discrimination, half had felt ignored or teased in their everyday social life because of their sexuality or gender identity. 20% stated that that happened within the work or professional context. 20% also were reporting um, being outed at work. Just under 15% experienced housing insecurity as a result of their gender identity or sexuality. So that's a really interesting thing. 65% had experienced interpersonal violence within the family or within close personal circles. So there are some really important things that that we need to think through. 
Going back to Jason's point just around visibility, a third stated or felt that they were invisible within their Indigenous community. So they felt personally invisible. Just under 40% said they, they feel it's very difficult to make friends with other queer Aboriginal people. And one thing that really I was interested to find that just under a quarter felt that leaders in their community wouldn't embrace them because of who they are. So I think there's a lot of work to do for our own mob. But when we look at the queer community more broadly, less than half felt that they belonged in that community. 40% had experienced a bunch of microaggressions within the queer community. And I just want to make this point as well. Two thirds were tired of educating tired of educating non-Indigenous queers about Indigenous or cultural issues. Now, that's significant. I think there's questions around being allies and the like. I just want people to, to remember that one. Mums are really important to come out to, according to the participants. Beyond Blue got a good rap, which I found interesting. And more than 77% of the participants believe that their Indigenous medical service that they access, they're very confident in that service. And I think that's a really important thing to take away because if you ask Noongar Mob here, they'll go, oh no, don't go there. You know, they'll be talking about you. The research says that in this context, that wasn't the case. So they're just some of the, the headlines there. Thanks, Braden. That's all so interesting. And you're right, still a lot of work to do, but really important to have some of those snapshots. Vanessa, there's quite a bit of interest on the participant questions around suicide rates in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, with a question specifically asking, you know, what can our non-Indigenous workplaces, friends, colleagues do to support the work that is being identified through some of the research, for example, that you're doing in suicide? prevention? When I hear questions like that, I can give you examples, real life examples from my own experience of working with people in such positions with what I'm doing with Ilga Oceana. And um, my non-Indigenous queer colleagues in Ilga Oceana, like they aren't afraid to step up and speak. They're not afraid to support me when I stand on a platform. And, you know, like I I can say to someone like Simon and say, Simon, I'm going to talk about this. Simon, can you explain it to me? As a a non-Indigenous person, how would you do this? Because this is how I would do it as an Indigenous person. You know, he'll tell me and I tell him. And so we're both like sharing our own perspectives. And then I've heard my colleagues, my non-Indigenous colleagues stand up and say, well, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait on the LGBT, sister, girl, brother, boy, they need this or they need that. And so it's about speaking up. It's about having not being unafraid to have that conversation. And it's also that the another strategy that I'll also give people in the workplace is one thing I saw in, um, that's what I've had here at University of Sydney, you send things out and sometimes you're not aware. A simple thing was my email signature. And, you know, this lovely gay man in HL somewhere over there in the system over there on the other side of the university sends me an email and he says, Vanessa, do you know your signature? It needs to come in line with this, this and this. He said, here, here's the link. This is an example, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, now why couldn't just anyone do that? And I'm so grateful that this young queer man, he actually just saw it and spoke up. And that's what it's about. It's about seeing it and being unafraid to speak up because at the end of the day, it's like what Jason was saying, you know, about those little kids. They don't see colour. They don't see race. They don't see sex or gender. Let's just see each other. Let's see who we are and say, hey, you know what? I did this and this is how I did it. Can I share this with you? And I also want to stress that point, Michelle, of humour. And I can't stress it enough because humour is what gives you resilience. As an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander woman, as a queer Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander woman in a whole community, in a whole society, it is about humour. 
It's about how we laugh at ourselves, how we laugh at ourselves to move forward and engage with what we're doing to move forward and taking that next step and bringing our, our queer brother or sister, regardless of their race, with us and saying, listen, hey, we're in this together. Let's stand up and speak together and let's do this together. Because when you start making that change from our own space, then it tells the rest of society that we are standing together and we are unafraid and we've got the courage to do this. And, you know, it goes into the policy space, it goes into advocacy space, and it goes into the community space. Mm. All of those spaces come together. That's Dr Vanessa Lee, social epidemiologist and co-convener of ILGA World. She was joined by consultant and inaugural CEO of the National Centre for Indigenous Excellence in Redfern, Jason Glanville, and Pro Vice-Chancellor Equity and Indigenous at Edith Cowan University's Centre for Indigenous Australian Education and Research, Professor Braden Hill. They were speaking as part of the online event Queer Aboriginal Voices Matter, hosted by the University of Sydney Pride Network and Pride at AGSM. The conversation was facilitated by Dr Michelle Dixon from the University of Sydney as part of the series Future Leadership for Equality. To take us out this evening, we'll leave you with some music from Moju. Throughout her career, she's often spoken out about the industry pressures she's faced as a queer woman of colour. In 2018, ahead of the release of her critically acclaimed album, Native Tongue, she recalled feeling as though she was too queer, too brown or not attractive enough to sell records. Here she is with Think Twice.
That was the artist Moju with the track Think Twice. And that's the show for this week. Join us again next week to hear an in-depth critique of the past four decades of mainstream media coverage on Aboriginal Australia. From media silence to media sovereignty. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.